Chapter thirty three, part A of the Monastery by Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three, part A. Now, on my faith, this gear is all entangled, like to the yarn clue of the drowsy knitter, dragged by the frolic kitten through the cabin, while the good dame sits nodding o'er the fire. Masters, attend. Twill crave some skill to clear it. Old Play Edward, with the speed of one who doubts the steadiness of his own resolution, hastened to prepare the horses for their departure, and at the same time thanked and dismissed the neighbours who had come to his assistance, and who were not a little surprised both at the suddenness of his proposed departure and at the turn affairs had taken. "'Here's cold hospitality,' quoth Dan of the Howlet Hurst to his comrades. "'I trow the Glendinnings may die and come alive right oft, ere I put foot in stirrup again for the matter.' Martin soothed them by placing food and liquor before them. They ate sullenly, however, and departed in bad humour. The joyful news that Halbert Glendinning lived was quickly communicated through the sorrowing family. The mother wept and thanked heaven alternately until her habits of domestic economy, awakening as her feelings became calmer, she observed, "'It would be an unco task to mend the yets, and what were they to do while they were broken in that fashion? At open doors dogs come in.' Tib remarked, "'She aye thought Albert was over gleg at his weapon to be killed say easily by ony Sir Piercy of them aw. They might say of these Southrons as they liked, but they had not the pith and wind of a canny Scot, when it came to close grips. On Mary Avenel the impression was inconceivably deeper. She had but newly learned to pray, and it seemed to her that her prayers had been instantly answered, that the compassion of heaven, which she had learned to implore in the words of Scripture, had descended upon her after a manner almost miraculous, and recalled the dead from the grave at the sound of her lamentations. There was a dangerous degree of enthusiasm in this strain of feeling but it originated in the purest devotion. A silken and embroidered muffler, one of the few articles of more costly attire which she possessed, was devoted to the purpose of wrapping up and concealing the sacred volume, which henceforth she was to regard as her chiefest treasure, lamenting only that for want of a fitting interpreter much must remain to her a book closed and a fountain sealed. She was unaware of the yet greater danger she incurred of putting an imperfect or even false sense upon some of the doctrines which appeared most comprehensible, but heaven had provided against both these hazards. While Edward was preparing the horses, Christie of the Clintill again solicited his orders respecting the reformed preacher, Henry Warden, and again the worthy monk laboured to reconcile in his own mind the compassion and esteem which, almost in spite of him, he could not help feeling for his former companion with the duty he owed to the church. The unexpected resolution of Edward had removed, he thought, the chief objection to his being left at Glendearg. "'If I carry this Wellwood, or Warden, to the monastery,' he thought, he must die, die in his heresy, perish body and soul. And though such a measure was once thought advisable to strike terror into the heretics, Yet such is now their daily increasing strength, that it may rather rouse them to fury and to revenge. True, he refuses to pledge himself to abstain from sowing his tares among the wheat, but the ground here is too barren to receive them. I fear not his making impression on these poor women, the vassals of the church. 
and bred up in due obedience to her behests. The keen, searching, inquiring, and bold disposition of Edward might have afforded fuel to the fire. But that is removed, and there is nothing left which the flame may catch to. Thus shall he have no power to spread his evil doctrines abroad, and yet his life shall be preserved, and it may be his soul rescued as a prey from the fowler's net. I will myself contend with him in argument, for when we studied in common I yielded not to him, and surely the cause for which I struggle will support me, were I yet more weak than I deem myself. Were this man reclaimed from his errors, an hundredfold more advantage would arise to the church from his spiritual regeneration than from his temporal death. Having finished these meditations, in which there was at once goodness of disposition and narrowness of principle, a considerable portion of self-opinion and no small degree of self-delusion, the sub-prior commanded the prisoner to be brought into his presence. "'Henry,' he said, "'whatever a rigid sense of duty may demand of me, ancient friendship and Christian compassion forbid me to lead thee to assured death. Thou wert wont to be generous, though stern and stubborn in thy resolves. Let not thy sense of what thine own thoughts term duty draw thee farther than mine have done. Remember that every sheep whom thou shalt here lead astray from the fold will be demanded in time and through eternity of him who hath left thee the liberty of doing such evil. I ask no engagement of thee, save that thou remain a prisoner, on thy word, at this tower, and wilt appear when summoned. Thou hast found an invention to bind my hands, replied the preacher, more sure than would have been the heaviest shackles in the prison of thy convent. I will not rashly do what may endanger thee with thy unhappy superiors and I will be the more cautious, because, if we had farther opportunity of conference, I trust thine own soul may yet be rescued as a brand from the burning, and that casting from thee the livery of Antichrist, that traitor in human sins and human souls, I may yet assist thee to lay hold on the rock of ages. The sub-prior heard the sentiment, so similar to that which had occurred to himself, with the same kindly feelings with which the gamecock hears and replies to the challenge of his rival. "'I bless God and Our Lady,' said he, drawing himself up, "'that my faith is already anchored on that rock on which St. Peter founded his church.' "'It is a perversion of the text,' said the eager Henry Warden, "'grounded on a vain play upon words, a most idle paranomasia.' The controversy would have been rekindled, and in all probability, for what can ensure the good temper and moderation of polemics, might have ended in the preacher's being transported a captive to the monastery, had not Christie of the Clinthill observed that it was growing late, and that he, having to descend the glen, which had no good reputation, cared not greatly for travelling there after sunset. The sub-prior, therefore, stifled his desire of argument, and again telling the preacher that he trusted to his gratitude and generosity, he bade him farewell. "'Be assured, my old friend,' replied Warden, "'that no willing act of mine shall be to thy prejudice. But if my master shall place work before me, I must obey God rather than man.' These two men, both excellent from natural disposition and acquired knowledge, had more points of similarity than they themselves would have admitted. In truth, the chief distinction betwixt them was— that the Catholic, defending a religion which afforded little interest to the feelings, had, in his devotion to the cause he espoused, more of the head than of the heart, and was politic, 
cautious, and artful, while the Protestant, acting under the strong impulse of more lately adopted conviction, and feeling, as he justly might, a more animated confidence in his cause, was enthusiastic, eager, and precipitate in his desire to advance it. The priest would have been contented to defend, the preacher aspired to conquer, and of course the impulse by which the latter was governed was more active and more decisive. They could not part from each other without a second pressure of hands, and each looked in the face of his old companion, as he bade him adieu, with a countenance strongly expressive of sorrow, affection, and pity. Father Eustace then explained briefly to Dame Glendinning that this person was to be her guest for some days, forbidding her and her whole household, under high spiritual censures, to hold any conversation with him on religious subjects, but commanding her to attend to his wants in all other particulars. "'May Our Lady forgive me, Reverend Father,' said Dame Glendinning, somewhat dismayed at this intelligence, but I must needs say that our money guests have been the ruin of money a house, and I trow they will bring down Glendearg. First came the Lady of Avenel, her soul be at rest, she meant nay ill, but she brought with her as money bogles and fairies as had kept the house in care ever since, say that we have been living as it were in a dream. And then came that English knight, if it please you, and if he has not killed my son outright, he has chased him aft the gate, and it may be lang enough ere I see him again. For by the damage done to outer door and inner door. And now your reverence has given me the charge of a heretic who, it is like, may bring the great horned devil himself down upon us all, and they say that it is neither door nor window will serve him, but he will take away the side of the old tower along with him. Nevertheless, reverend father, your pleasure is doubtless to be done to our power. Go to, woman, said the sub-prior. Send for workmen from the clacken, and let them charge the expense of their repairs to the community, and I will give the treasurer warrant to allow them. Moreover, in settling the rental mails and few duties, thou shalt have allowance for the trouble and charges to which thou art now put and I will cause strict search to be made after thy son." The dame curtsied deep and low at each favourable expression, and when the sub-prior had done speaking she added her farther hope that the sub-prior would hold some communing with her gossip the miller concerning the fate of his daughter, and expound to him that the chance had by no means happened through any negligence on her part. "'I sair doubt me, father,' she said whether Mysie finds her way back to the mill in a hurry. But it was all her father's own fault that let her run lamping about the country, riding on bare-backed nags, and never settling to do a turn of work within doors, unless it were to dress dainties at dinner-time for his ain kite. "'You remind me, dame, of another matter of urgency,' said Father Eustace, and God knows too many of them press on me at this moment. This English knight must be sought out, an explanation given to him of these most strange chances. The giddy girl must also be recovered. If she hath suffered in reputation by this unhappy mistake, I will not hold myself innocent of the disgrace. End of chapter 33, part A.